Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. Uh, great to be here with you and worship with you today. I hope that today is one of the highlights of your week. Every week, uh, no matter what's happening, you can come together with uh, God's people, your church family, and worship Jesus Christ, who died for you, who loves you, and uh, wants to pour out his grace into your life. And so I hope this is an exciting time for you. If you're a guest with us, I want to just say hello. So thanks so much for coming. Check us out here. Hopefully you got a great parking spot and received a worship program on your way in. The one thing we ask you to do is before you leave, if you'd fill out that connection card that's on your worship program, take it to the orange tent. If you take it to the orange tent, we've got a gift to give you, and uh, you can drop it in the boxes if you want, uh, where people will be doing their tithes and offerings at the end. But if you take it out to the orange tent, you get to meet some people, and uh, they give you a gift. And then we make a donation, no matter where you turn it in at, to a ministry called Women at Risk International that rescues uh, women and children primarily, but anybody, out of human trafficking situations. So you just fill in that card out today, have an opportunity to have an impact on somebody's life. And so if you do that for us, that'd be great. And as you saw from the video, the, the bumper video that we had here right between the worship and the preaching time. Um, we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John, and so we're excited about that. You can turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're going to get there in just a moment, but I want to say to you, church family, those of you who are a regular part of our church, uh, my wife and I, one of our elders, J.D., and one of his children went, went, went over to Madagascar, Africa recently. And you all were praying for us. If you weren't praying for us, shame on you. Just kidding. Uh, if you were praying for us, thank you so much for praying for us. We needed it. Uh, I'm going to share more about that. Next week, we're going to be commissioning another team that's going to Madagascar to do some relief efforts there. Uh, they've been in about a three-year famine and drought that's been going on, and it is really dry. Uh, but God's doing an amazing work. We met, I met one, one of the pastors I met there while we were doing some training with some of their leaders. It was a former witch doctor who trusted Christ as now a leader of the church uh, in his village. And so, yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for life change for sure. And uh, there, there are a bunch of stories of the work that God's doing there, and y'all have been praying for some of our missionaries for 10 years uh, and just over that have been sharing the gospel there. God's done an amazing work. That was, it's one of the, the few times there's actually been an unreached people group that's gone from unreached to reached, and uh, they are now at a spot where there's over 7,000 believers that were no believers uh, when they first went there, and uh, just getting out there, and I'm, I'm excited to share with you some of the updates, but I'll do that next week. I'm not doing that right now. I'll do that next week. See, I'm stopping. Uh, came back into town after uh, traveling to that, went on a family vacation, and, and just yesterday came back into town here to Raleigh. It's great to be back, and uh, one of my friends is here to preach the word to you this morning. His name is Gary Stefaniak. It's like Pontiac, if you're trying to pronounce that again later, but uh, Gary Stefaniak preached the word in the first service from John chapter 8. Gary's a pastor in Edwardsville, Illinois. At a, oh, yeah, there we go. We got two. We got two. They're here today. Uh, at Metro Community Church. And so if you've been in that area, maybe you visited Metro Community Church. He's the pastor of care and recovery there. Uh, has been with them through, they went through a transition from being at a school, had about 600 people, and uh, moved into a facility. Today there are about 1,600 people. He was their small group pastor at the time for that. Led them from having about 24 small groups to over 80 small groups. So he's got a leadership gift. You're going to see today he's got a gift for preaching the word. Has a ton of life experiences in ministry and just in life. I never knew the Camaro story, so I'm looking forward to hearing that again uh, here in a moment. But why don't you give Gary a Southbridge welcome as he comes on up and uh, preaches the word to us this morning. He's got a wonderful family, too. He's got three kids. His oldest son was here uh, during the first service. He's got three boys, he and his wife, Beth. Beth's a, uh, a counselor. She's got her master's degree in marriage and family counseling, and they do ministry together. She blogs at MessyMarriage.com, right? So whether you have a messy marriage or not, go check that out. That'll be great. And, uh, and just found out, he's, I know he looks so young and handsome, you're not even going to believe this, but uh, his oldest son, they're having their first child. He's going to be a grandparent here soon, so 
Way to go, Gary. <clears throat> so he visited here uh, a couple months ago for the gender reveal. If you want to know that information, uh, you can see him after the service and find that out. So let me pray for Gary as he opens up the word and pray for us. Father, thank you so much uh, for Gary being here with us this morning and uh, just opening up the scriptures. I pray, God, that you would speak to us, speak through his lips, give him the exact words for this service. It might be different than some from the last service. It's totally up to you, and we just ask your Holy Spirit to guide that. God, I pray we'd have an encounter with you more than anything else. We wouldn't just talk about encounters. We wouldn't just look at encounters other people had with your son, Jesus. I pray that you would encounter our hearts. I pray that each one of us would come to your word as we open up John chapter 8 and see what do you have for us this morning? What do you want to say to us? How do you want to change us? And God, I pray you'd do that. And I pray for my friend Gary. you just anoint his lips to speak your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Scott. So I got the right one? Yeah. Scott and I have the same Bible, so make sure he picks up the right one. Doesn't take off with my notes. That'd be trouble. Uh, good morning, Southbridge. I am so glad to be here. Uh, I love you guys. Um, I'm glad to be a part of this series uh, that we're in on encounters and, and discovering uh, what God's doing in people's lives through Scripture and what can, uh, we can identify with and experience along the same way. I want to tell you, though, um, I, if you see a look on my face that looks a little strange and, and you might think that that dude's in pain, uh, that kind of look, that would be true because I broke my foot back on Memorial Day and this is the first day without my boot. And uh, I've got to have surgery, they say. And so if I step a little wrong, <laughs> you're going to get that look. Uh, so I just want to let you know, it, it's not you, it's me, all right? Uh, so uh, that's my foot. I was running, and I uh, know I don't look like a runner. Uh, it's, th there's a reason for that, because I'm an eater. And uh, <laughs> I sort of balance it out. I what I want to do is maintain my fatness. So I, you know, I, I run three days a week up until uh, Memorial Day and a couple miles just to, so I don't get that a extra layer of fatness on. I just sort of maintain right where I'm at. But I was running and uh, listening to a podcast and not paying attention. Uh, sometimes uh, I'm, I'm a little clumsy on occasion, but that's the exception, not the rule. That's not, but I, I went down. I've never broken a bone in my life, but I, I was listening. got too close to the edge of the road. And uh, went sideways, broke a bone that they say needs a pin in it. I'm not real excited about that. But here's the, here's the funny thing about breaking a bone, uh, if there is a funny thing, uh, some redeeming value to it. I, I, was I told you I was listening to a podcast. I was listening to a Southbridge podcast. <laughs> and it was Memorial Day weekend, uh, and it was that Monday right after, and it, it was, it was uh, Peter O'Shell. And some of you might remember what the text was. It was Jude 24 talking about God to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And I was like, God, where are you on Memorial Day? Come on, man. You know? But I, I, I stumbled along. So I have some kind of special connection. Uh, I'll, I'll always have a memory of Southbridge because of my left foot and the bone in it. Um, this morning, uh, the title I've given my message is Great Grace Smashing, Guilt Smashing Grace, uh, where guilt takes grace behind the woodshed teaches it a lesson it'll never forget. We all deal with guilt because we all sin. We all need to really have a great, strong grasp on grace, and that's where I hope we go today uh, in, in the message. And I want to uh, give you a little feel and experience the message. I don't want us just to, to hear the words and understand the story, but I, but I want us to really experience the passage uh, as, we, as we get into it and, and move into it. I want us to... to have the emotions that maybe the, the character might have felt. So what, what I want to do, I'm, <laughs> you're going to love this, I know. Um, pretend like I know everything about you. I know all your secrets. You're getting nervous, aren't you? 
I know everything. I know all your dark secrets. I know all the skeletons you have locked in your closet. You hope and pray never get out. Nobody ever knows about your secret sins and things, the worst of you. Things that you want to get over, but you know that are there. Uh, I want you to pretend like I know that. And I'm going to get a spotlight and I'm going to shine it right on you. <laughs> and uh, everybody can see. And I'm going to come down off the stage and I'm going to get into your row and I'm going to take you by the hand. I'm going to bring you right up here on stage and stand right next to me while I publicly expose your dark side. And so everybody in the room is going to, going to know it. The, the first service, uh, I guess I didn't tell them about you, did I? Okay, uh, for you. But listen, what's going to happen? In a couple of days, this is going to go online and the world is going to know all about you and your secret sins. How do you feel about that? Well, now that you're all comfortable <laughs> and cozy and feel good about things, uh, let me uh, read from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, as you follow along. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst and they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses tells us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was there left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is a story about guilt. It's a story that illustrates the contrast between law and grace. It tells us what law is incapable of, but what grace has the power to do in regard to our sin. Law exposes our sin. It accuses us. It judges us. It condemns us. It penalizes us. It punishes us. It shames us. The law does its job. But the law has no power to provide a remedy to resolve our sin. You see, the law is necessary, but it's heartless. So as we unpack the text this morning, what I want to do is uh, I, I want to help us discover the power of grace and what God does in grace to release us from the guilt and the shame that we experience. And what I want to do is, is I want to go to the end of the story because if we miss the end of the story, we miss the whole thing. We can't experience God's grace if we don't get here because it's crucial. It's a crucial grace encounter. And grace extends beyond this point, but we've got to get here to the beginning. The end of the story is the starting point for experiencing the fullness of God's guilt-smashing grace. I want to share uh, three things, three ways, three unique ways that, that grace changes us. And the first one is this. Grace changes the outcome of my sin from guilty to forgiven. Jesus said, who condemns you? Nobody, not even me. I do not condemn you. This lady, sinful woman caught in the act, had a, a grace encounter with Jesus, and that was the beginning of her changed life. No condemnation from Jesus. Unlike the religious leaders, Jesus didn't simply look through the lens of the law when he spoke to this woman. He didn't merely bring out the law and, and say, this is where the law leaves you, guilty, condemned, and without hope. 
The law has the power to call out sin and call us guilty. It reveals the truth, and we need the truth. And the truth is, is a necessary messenger, but it, but it has a limit. The truth can only go so far. The truth can take us to guilty and leave us there. And when we're just left in the cesspool of our guilt, we don't feel good about that. We revert to the tactics of our ancestors, Adam and Eve in the garden, what they did, they hid, and so do we. When we're exposed, when we're confronted and convicted about our sin, the only outcome when we look at the law just through the lens of the law, the only outcome, the only possibility is punishment. So we run, we hide, we hope we won't be seen. And when we're caught, we don't want to look you in the eye. I want to give you an example of what that might look like. Who did this over here? Who did all this? Oh, I can't believe you. Who, who did mommy's shoe? Who did it? Boeing, why can't you look at me? Does that look familiar? Some of you have sticking your nose in the sofa, haven't you, when you've been caught? But that's what we do. The animal kingdom does it. We all do it. We want to hide when we're caught. We don't want to acknowledge it. Like Southwest Airlines, we just want to get away, right? Yeah, when we look at the law, at, at sin and, and guilt like a Pharisee, simply through the lens of the law, the outcome's only punishment, and, and we want to run and hide. We don't want to get caught. And I, I, I've done my share of running, and one of the times sticks in my mind, and you'll know why. It's just vivid in my imagination. But when I was 16 years old, I had a 68 Camaro. It was really fast. I, uh, I had a 327 three-speed, if you know anything about car engines. Uh, it wasn't that big, but it I blew away all my friends with 350s and their Corvettes. I put a good clutch in it, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a hillbilly from Tennessee, and so I would bark the tires every time I changed gears, so I, I thought I was cool, you know? I wanted everybody to know it, and had headers on it, so it was loud. Sometimes ran open headers, so it was really loud. Uh, so I had my 68 Camaro, and, and Charlie, a friend I picked up, and, and we went to an out-of-town high school Friday night football game that was uh, a ways out of town, and went to the game, and hung out afterwards, and came back late. And going down Broadway uh, in Knoxville, where I'm from, and minding my own business, being a good boy, and uh, ready to take Charlie home, and pull up to a stoplight, and and, and then there's this uh, little, it's, it's only ones on the road where me and this little Dotson, y'all you know, laughing, you know Nissan, Nissan, Dotson changed their name to Nissan, some of you that don't know that, history of cars, this uh, Dotson 240Z pulls up next to me, this little pipsqueak, revving his engine up like he's, he's wanting to get it on, and I thought, okay, I'll teach you a lesson, so here it is, it's almost midnight, we're, we're on, on Main Street, Broadway, we, the, the, the light turns green and we take off, we're flying down Broadway, we're loud, we're fast, uh, we, I say, he's, he's like here and I'm here, you know. <laughs> I'm fast, 90 miles an hour, 85 here, uh, going down Broadway, screaming through red lights, just blowing through them, a couple of them. Finally, I've, I've had enough. Uh, he's way back there, and I stop at a red light, and, and he blows through that one, and I wait patiently. The light turns green, and I'm back to my good boy self. Yet halfway up the hill, something I hadn't taken into consideration when I sat at that first red light with that uh, uh, Dotson next to me is, uh, okay, it's late. 
We're the only ones on the road. My car is loud as I'm going fast, right past Dunkin' Donuts. And I discover that I interrupted their little donut time, okay? Uh, I got halfway up the hill looking in my rearview mirror. There's the lights. And here's what Charlie says. Take off, man. You can outrun them. So my adrenaline's pumping. I don't know what to do. So I take off. I don't want to wait to make a decision. I take off. And, I, and I'm driving fast and furious, seriously. And I'm going. I'm locking it up and sliding sideways into the corners, left and right, left and right. And I lose them. I get in there. But I'm still going fast because I'm all nervous. Adrenaline's pumping. Charlie says, slow down, man. You've lost them. They're not mine. So we hang out and just drive slowly, creeping through and turn my lights off so nobody sees me hanging out here. And then after a while, I think, okay, it's safe. So we get back out on a, on a different road that's more of a main road drive, just, just getting on it, driving and out behind a building. Here they come again. Lights. So I give up. I pull over. And, and I'm serious, within two minutes, seven police cars are surrounding us. And they get me out. And, and here's what, what ends up. I, I'm charged with uh, um, speeding, reckless driving, resisting arrest, carrying a concealed weapon, no driver's license. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bad. No, I, I, had to, I left my license at the University of Tennessee. I went with a friend to work out in the gym and forgot it and left it there. Uh, the, the weapon was, I, I, some kid gave me just a few days before a, a rubber mallet. Uh, and it, so I, I didn't know what to do with that. I threw it under my seat, you know. And they found it. So I'm, I'm charged with all this. Well, let me ask you this. How, how much sense would it, it be if I were to think, okay, I'm caught, but... You know, I've got some bad stuff that I've experienced. I've broken the law, but let me just talk to this police officer about all the good things I've done and how, how obedient I've been with the law. So what I said, sir, let me, I know you're writing something there, but let me, let me just share with you. I, 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 don't, I don't know if you noticed or not, but I, I, I stopped at that last red light and I, I came to a complete stop. I waited until light turned green before I moved and, and I used my blinker when I turned left going up the hill. And do you, when you ask me, kindly to get out of the car, put my hands on the, the top of the car. I did that without hesitation. So what I'm doing is trying to distract the police officer, you know, balancing things out. Maybe if he looks at the good I've done in my driving, he'll, he'll forget the bad. And, and that doesn't work, does it? <laughs> do you know we do that with our faith? When we, when we misunderstand and we twist, twist Christianity... When, we, when we're locked in and, 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 and we're still chained to the law, when we're guilty, we want to hide. When we're guilty, we want to we make things up. We want to run from God. Uh, and, and if he finds us, if he notices, we want to distract him with our good stuff, trying to balance the scales and, and, and hope that he'll just call it even and, and walk away and we'll be good to go. That's what we do with our faith. But we can't because that's not biblical Christianity. That's a perversion of it, and it's sad when we get locked in to the chains of the law. The law is necessary. It's purposeful. We can't experience grace without the law. We have to have the law. We need both the law and grace, but we don't need to be frightened by the law. We don't need to be chained by the law. Apart from the law, grace is irrelevant. Grace is out of reach until we come face to face with our sin and acknowledge our guilt. We need both. And fortunately... Good news is we have a Savior that brings both. He comes carrying both. The Gospel of John tells us in the first chapter that he is full of grace and truth, the truth of the law. We need both. 
And he comes with both. And here in the story, here's what Jesus did with the woman caught in her sin. She's guilty. Uh, Jesus didn't dismiss or reject the law. He honored it. Uh, Jesus didn't ignore or overlook her sin. He addressed it, but he didn't stop there. Jesus applied grace to the law. He acknowledged her sin, and then he freed her from it. Here's what's amazing about grace. One of the things is grace chases us. That's what Kyle Eidelman says. He reminds us, and I love this. He says, grace chases you. You can run away and hide, but grace is relentless. Grace will chase you down. You know, the whole time we're running because of our view of the law and punishment, uh, we're running away from it. And, and in reality, what we're running from is grace. Because grace is on the, on the move, chasing us. And we're running from the best thing that could ever happen to us. Grace, God's grace. If you've never personally received Christ, stop running. Let grace catch you. Place your faith in Christ. Invite Him to cover your sin by His blood on the cross that He shed. Receive the guilt-smashing grace of God's forgiveness. It's the best step, the best move you could ever make. It's the most important step. The first step, though, the very first step in living and experiencing grace, it's a crucial step. It's a starting point for a radical life change of God's unfolding grace after grace in our lives as we experience and live it. Yeah, we need saving grace. That's what this portion is about, the change that takes place, the change with this woman, this sinful woman. But we also need sanctifying grace and, and sustaining grace, grace that carries us on. Because there's a life to live with Christ within us. So, number two, another change that takes place, grace does. Grace changes my response to another sin from condemnation to compassion. So first we're talking about my own sin, coming right with that, getting right. Now we're talking about when other people sin. You know, that jacks with us, doesn't it? When other people start sinning, maybe it's okay if, if, if it doesn't affect us. But when it starts messing with us, we can get a little bit out of shape. But sometimes we can get so cocky, it doesn't even have to deal with us. We'll start pointing our fingers at other people. Grace saves and grace also empowers us to treat people kindly when they sin. We saw it the way Jesus responded. Not like the, uh, the, the religious leaders who simply focused on the law and they looked and said, this woman is guilty. And Jesus looks at her, and Jesus said, this woman needs a change in her life. The scribes and the Pharisees were full of law, but their grace tank was empty. And the more apparent it became, the more they exposed this woman and what they did and what they walked through. And I, I started looking at this, and I'm thinking, they were guilty of a whole lot, just the way they did all this. And I, and I wrote six things down, and there's probably a hundred things they did wrong, but I wrote six uh, ways that I found that these religious leaders that were devoted to the law were, were guilty. Number one, they were highly disrespectful as they busted in and inter interrupted Jesus as he was teaching in the temple. Two, uh, they were callously insensitive as they brought public shame on this sinful woman, throwing her at Jesus' feet. Number three, they were heartlessly unsympathetic as they demanded her punishment while ignoring her need for healing. Number four, they were unjustly discriminating as they accused the woman of adultery but excused the man caught in the very same sin. Number five, they were deceptively manipulative as they tried to catch Jesus in a theological trap, pretending that they really cared about the law. Number six, they were systematically self-righteous as they conveniently ignored their own sin, 
while they pointed their bony fingers at someone else's. The graceless, religious, good old boys were intoxicated with spiritual pride. And apart from God's guilt-smashing grace, that's, that's how we live. Isn't it? We don't want to admit it, usually. But that's how we are. We like throwing stones. Sometimes we find pleasure in throwing stones. Sometimes we make it an Olympic sport, throwing stones at somebody else. Why do we do that? Why do we find it so pleasurable, so easy to point out someone else's sin? I like what uh, John Fisher said. He wrote a book, and I love the title of it, 12 Steps for the Recovering Pharisee. <laughs> and, and he shares. He says, the act of judging gives us a subjective means of affirming ourselves. No matter what I've done or how bad I am, I can always comfort myself by finding someone else out there who is worse than I am. I can also bring down those who appear to be more worthy than me by finding or manufacturing some flaw in their character that allows me to be better than they are, in my own mind anyway. This is the means by which we establish a pharisaical sense of self-worth. If I can show that I'm better than someone else, anyone else, then I can think of myself as being worthy based on that assessment alone. I can place a value on myself that can be confirmed by repeatedly finding someone else further down the moral ladder or someone afoul, something afoul with those that are further up. Back to these men, the story in John 8. I'm sure they felt like they were untouchable. They were superior. They're thinking, if my, our scheme that we're about to trap Jesus in, that'll make me look and feel even better than I feel already about myself. But their scheme backfired. You know, Jesus starts riding on the sand. And, and there's all kinds of speculation as to what he wrote. And, and who knows, but, you know, some say he might have been writing the, the names of women that the, these men have been sexually involved with. But truth is, if you think about it, these men caught this woman in the act of adultery. So what they're doing, they're peeking through the window, they're watching it all. Probably enjoying it. It's equivalent to watching pornography these days online. So Jesus might have just bent down and, and, and wrote letters, you know, HBO. And they got the idea. Uh-oh. Well, whatever Jesus wrote, who knows what he wrote, but, but it turned the tables. And it, and it took away their power. They were exposed. They walked away. They were disarmed. And, and you know, it might have been in the, in the text, it says, the second time Jesus wrote, it said they heard him. But he was writing in the sand. I think they, they heard it inside. They got it. And they walked away. When I was... Um, in seminary in Fort Dallas, Fort Worth, I worked for American Airlines, and um, had a friend Monica, and the two of us worked together a lot. And uh, they were posted a, a position, a, a, a promotion, and both Monica and I applied for the promotion. And um, a few weeks later, my my boss came to me and called me in and wanted to talk about this and uh, let me know who got the promotion. And uh, she threw a three ring binder on on her table. And didn't say anything for a minute. And then she said, uh, I've already talked with Monica, and she brought this in. It's a notebook uh, full of grievances and things that you've done wrong to show that you don't deserve to be promoted, to disqualify you from being promoted. And then she didn't say anything. And I sort of 
<laughs> open it up, look, see what's there. And you know, some of that's true, but some of it's twisted, some of it's totally wrong and fabricated. But it, but it was a notebook, a handwritten notebook. She misspelled some words and used some words wrong. And, I, uh, and then my boss looked at me and said, you know, Monica did that to disqualify you from getting this promotion. And in doing that, Monica disqualified herself. Congratulations, the job is yours. And she didn't even look at the notebook, what was in it. And that's the kind of stuff we do when we operate by the law, when we're tethered to the law and, and we're, we're ignorant of grace and we let grace live. So functioning by the law, we're always looking at somebody else. We're looking at their sin, highlighting it, and just ignoring our own. So let me tell you what I did, though. Here. A few weeks ago, uh, my wife and I met with some friends, went out for lunch. And I took the liberty to be critical of someone that I knew, shared stuff that uh, really was not pleasant, identified the way this person was uh, living wrong. Um, it, it, it was true and sort of justified, but here's the problem with it. What, what happened to me inside in my heart? <laughs> Pride. And I start feeling superior because of what I'm saying and, and, and comparing, that's, that's just wrong. What I did was no different than what Monica did to me. I just didn't bring the notebook. Didn't write it down. And sad that that kind of pride is so easily accessible to, to a follower of Jesus. Somebody studying their Bible, reading, praying engaging with others, leading other people to Jesus, helping them to, to, to get on board and learn how to walk in grace, and, and that stuff so easily comes. I'm disappointed in myself, but I know what to do with it. Apart from grace, though, listen, what happens? Apart from grace, my reaction, you hang around me five minutes, you'll know it, you'll see it, it's obvious. My reaction, my knee-jerk, graceless automatic default reaction is ugly when, when I'm living by the law, when that's all I see. But Scripture tells us grace is essential for healthy relationships, and it warns us that, hey, listen, uh, a lack of grace uh, damages relationships, bitterness is rooted in, and it grows up. That's what it says in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Other versions say, see to it that no one uh, fails to receive the grace of God, fails to experience the grace of God. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, because we need the grace of God just as much today as a follower of Jesus as we did when, when our soul was dark and dead in sin. We need the, just the same. We live by grace. Colossians says, just in the same way that you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to grow in Him. How did you receive Him? His grace. Continue to grow in Him through grace. We need it every single stinking day, don't we? Um, here's what happens. and You get sideways with people, don't you? Your spouse, your kids, your parents, uh, your co-workers, your neighbors. Who knows? We get sideways. And, and when there's a conflict with, with, with me and someone else, uh, my automatic response is to, to really focus in on their part of the conflict, their contribution, right? Uh, but Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, uh, chapter 7, verse 5, Jesus says, The hypocrite, you hypocrite, uh, 
Uh, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But, but here's what, I, I like what Ken Sandy says uh, uh, that, that piggybacks on this verse. Think, think about this now. It's a great visual. Even, think about you in a conflict with someone twisted, and they've offended you. They, they've hurt you. They've got some wrong. Um, even when the other person is 98% responsible for the conflict, and I am only 2% responsible, which is usually the case with me. Ken Sandy says, I am still 100% responsible for my 2%. Just because the other person's part is bigger doesn't mean I can ignore my part. i got to go there first. I gotta, when, when I'm operating by grace, that's, that's where I go. I land and I look inside and look at me and my contribution. A lot of times it will lead me to apologize. And, and, and in apologizing, a lot of times they'll apologize back without me first pulling out the big guns and going with the law. You know what I mean? And when, I, when, I'm, when I'm criticizing them and blaming them, and, 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 and maybe it's all true and justified, but when I go at it according to the law, the outcome's not going to be good. When I go at it according to grace, the outcome might still not be good. They might not reciprocate it, but there's a sure a better chance of that happening. And that's the way that it happens when we live by grace. Right? So, um, another verse, uh, Scripture tells us, Sweet verse, uh, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, not condemn him, restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Not with criticism, but with gentleness. And and that's the way we should operate as followers of Jesus. And when Jesus is really fully uh, saturated in our lives and living and empowering us, that's kind of, Jesus comes out. And when we start treating people like he treats people, even when they sin, even when they hurt us. The scribes and Pharisees looked through the lens of the law, and they chose to look at this woman. They chose condemnation. When Jesus looked through the lens of the law, he chose compassion. When he looked at her, he saw her need to be restored. When I've been infused with God's guilt-smashing grace, I treat people differently. My response changes from condemnation to compassion, from revenge to restoration. This is the practice of grace. Third uh, change, uh, grace encounter. Grace changes my motivation for living right from obligation to desire. Bottom of the passage, last thing Jesus said, go, and from now on, what? Sin no more. You see, Jesus, yeah, yeah, listen, he's, he's soft. His heart's full of compassion, love, and, 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 and forgiveness, and, and all those good things. But he's not soft on sin. He's gentle, but he's not soft. He addresses sin head on with this woman. Uh, he didn't just wink at her and say, oh, it's no big deal, take off. Uh, he addressed her sin head on, and, di- and he wanted her to walk away and not miss the change that the full expression of grace could bring in her life. Because that first encounter was just the beginning of what could follow. Grace doesn't just save us from God's wrath. It awakens us. And it empowers us to a new way of living, living the way that we were originally designed to live. You see, uh, sin no more and living that way uh, with God's power and grace uh, is the only avenue, the only way to live that glorifies God and satisfies man. It's, it's the only way. God is serious about sin because sin kills us. Sin takes something from us every time we do it. So he wants us to deal with it so we'll be healthy. And when we're changed by God's guilt-smashing grace, we get serious about sin too. 
Scripture says in 2 Corinthians, the newness. You know this one, don't you? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. There's a new motivation for me when I sin. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm locked to the law, you know what my motivation is? Avoid punishment. Now, because of grace, when I re really see clearly grace, my motivation is to honor God, to bless Him, to please Him, to, to reflect Him. Ezekiel 36, God says, I'll give you a new heart. A new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone, that critical, compassionless heart, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, a heart of flesh that's moldable, moldable that, that fills my spirit, that is moved by my spirit. Lucy Ann Mole is a biblical counselor, and she says this, We have been given new hearts that have become intolerant to sin. More and more we lose the ability to be okay with even the slightest sin. Our motivations change. It's not, oh, I have to stop sinning. Now it's, I want to stop sinning. I want to bless God. I, another image in my head that I remember is when I was in the fourth grade. And I was with my mother. We were going up Sharps Ridge. And over the ridge, she's driving. I'm sitting in the seat. And she says, Gary, I smell smoke. You smoking cigarettes? I said, yes. And here's what she did. She said, and she doesn't smoke. She said, okay, let's pull over. We'll buy a pack of cigarettes. We'll both sit there and smoke them. No. I don't want my mother smoking cigarettes. No. I couldn't stand the thought of seeing my mother smoke a cigarette. And, and I, I, I hated it that I had hurt her in that way. And I, I wanted to honor her. I wanted to please her. So in the fourth grade, I stopped smoking cigarettes. Because I love my mother. I started smoking cigarettes in kindergarten. Ramsey, my neighbor, is four years older than me, and he took me down to the creek and taught me a lot of things. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you any more about that. <laughs> Those are the things I'm praying I'll go to the grave and you not know. All right? I'm, I'm sharing a few of my stuff and mess with you. Listen. Okay, God not only changes my motivation to not sin, but he does something else that's really, really good. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, 4, is, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. He changes both. He empowers both. My desire, it's God working in me to give me that desire to please him. And not only that, but to give me the power, the ability to do it, which I can't do on my own. John Piper says, grace is not simply leniency when we sin. Grace is the enabling gift and power of God to not sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. Therefore, the effort we make to obey God is not an effort done in our own strength, but by the strength that God supplies. Now, I still sin, and I still hate it, and operating by the law or by grace are, are two different ways to go about it when we're believers and we sin. And let me tell you what I do about it when I lock on to grace. Now, now when it's law, 
I hate it. I'm hiding. But grace, here's what I do when I sin. Here's my sort of repentance process. I try, I try my best to, to be up front and quickly confess to God uh, what I've done and, and be specific about it and confess to someone else who it involves them. I try to do that. I try to be sorry for my sin. I really do try to, try to, 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 to feel the experience that, that I've hurt God's heart and, 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 and grieve over it and try to do that. I ask God to empower me not to be so stupid or selfish or whatever it is I was. Uh, to empower me to do that. And remember Philippians, what he does to empower me. But one thing I don't do, and when I say this, people look at me weird. I mean, you give me the look I was warning you about me giving you, you know. Are y'all in pain? Uh, um, I never, when I sin, I never ask for forgiveness. You know what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, I, I'm not there thinking, will you please God forgive me? Will you? Maybe you will, maybe you won't. And in the, in the law, that's law thinking, and I, I'm running because he may not. I didn't hear anything. And it, but here's if I were to say, God, will you forgive me? God would say, Gary, you're mine. Don't you remember what happened when you were 11 years old? I forgave you then. You came to me, confessed your sin. You wanted to be a part of my life. And, and so I, I forgave you uh, for the first 11 years of sin. And I gave you for all the junk since then. I've forgiven you for stuff already you hadn't done yet. But I've already forgiven you. I don't, Gary, I don't want you to come questioning, God, will you forgive me? What I want you to do is come and say, God, thank you for forgiving me. And that's grace. There's not a question about it. I don't have to be frightened by the law. Frightened by God's choice. He's already forgiven me for all the stupid stuff I'm about to do. Grace. Here, okay, let me just close with this. Uh, this is what keeps me grounded. Things like this. I've got this on my computer screen at work. And, and I see it multiple times a day. Don't read it every time. But every time I see it, it's there. And it's a reminder. And this is where I want to be. Uh, John Wesley it's one of his prayers, his covenant prayer. Listen to this. This is great. I'm no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. I need that every day so that I can breathe in the oxygen of grace. Let me summarize where we've been in this story. Because of God's gift of guilt-smashing grace, I can have the courage to confess my sin. No more hiding. I can have the, the compassion for others when they sin. No more throwing stones. And I can have the confidence to know that God empowers me not to sin. No more settling for less. When I get a hold of God's guilt-smashing grace, my life changes forever, radically. Grace upon grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for grace. Thank you for Jesus, a clear expression of grace. Thank you for what grace does in us every day with every breath, all the possibility of it. Help us to not miss grace. Lord, there's people here today among us that, that some have never experienced your grace, the first step of grace. All they've known is the law, and they've stopped short, and they're not yours.
Help them, Lord, to come to you, to yield to you and bring their sins to you that are not yet forgiven. Help them to stop running. I pray that your grace would catch them as they acknowledge their sin and put their faith in you. Maybe today, welcome them, Lord, into your family and those of us that are following you. Some of us are following, but we're a little stale. Our spiritual life, a little dull, doesn't have the life that, that it once had, and we've become satisfied with this. And God, I, I pray that you would shake us out of our comfort when, when, there's, when there's unconfessed sin, unresolved sin, the things we've been tolerating, hiding. Pray that uh, we'll bring those to you. And if we don't, God, I pray that you would shake us violently and come to us and expose us so that we'd be brought to our knees for you and no longer would grace be blocked help us to get tired of running help us to run free in your grace in Jesus name Amen